This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, guys? Sean back here with Everything REI. And today, I have my good friend John Kim here with me with Moto EXP to tell us how to get a loan to purchase your home. We're gonna go over all the different requirements for getting a loan, all the different loan programs out there, and what you need to know to get a home loan for your very first home purchase. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, John. So thank you so much for coming on our show today. For those of us who don't know who you are, you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Uh, my name is John. I am a mortgage broker. My company name is Model Mortgage. Exciting. So today I want to have you on the show to give us a complete walkthrough of loans and you know, how to get a loan to buy a property. A lot of places where we can start, but I guess we can start with down payment, credit score. Um, ideally, you want to do 20% down if you can, just to avoid avoid PMI, which is private mortgage insurance. To go over what PMI is, it's basically insurance for the lender in case you ever defaulted on your loan, that they'll be insured some amount, some amount of money back if you do ever declare you can't pay the loan back. PMI is very dependent on how much down payment you have and the credit score as well. Credit score is probably the biggest factor when it comes to PMI, but also down payment and the equity you have in your property. Minimum down payment, if you want to look for a conventional loan is 3% or a conforming loan amount, which is right around 510 today. Um, if it's non-conforming and it's high balance, then you minimum would be 5%. And then for FHA, which is a different kind of loan, uh, minimum down is 3.5%. And you can put higher than 3.5% if you want. Um, only bad thing about FHA is that PMI is for the life of the loan. It doesn't drop automatically once you hit the 20% equity mark, like a conventional loan. Yeah, so basically you have to refinance or sell the house to get rid of it. Correct. Um, most of what, So what most people do, I always tell them, if you get an FHA loan now, which some people can only qualify for an FHA loan sometimes, uh, just because their credit score is lower or they have some derogatory credit that FHA would look over, but conventional wouldn't. So that's why if you ever get an FHA loan, you want to eventually refinance into a conventional down the road. And when you get enough equity, you get rid of the PMI and lower and get a good interest rate for conventional as well. But in most cases, FHA is a lower interest rate than um, conventional, but the PMI is higher on FHA. That's why you want to eventually refinance to a conventional down the road. And how much is PMI if you would ballpark some numbers uh just to give an example i would say and it like i said it depends on credit score as well so if your credit score was like 680 let's say on an fha for purchase price of five hundred thousand, with minimum down 3.5 percent you're probably looking at pmi depending on the bank as well and how much coverage they require for themselves um can ballpark around like 250 to 350 per month a month that's a lot and it's not tax deductible as well which is even worse. So that's why you want to get rid of out of the FHA loan eventually, but FHA does help a lot of people get into homes. And it is valuable because the money that your house will grow over time kind of makes it way worth it then to not buy at all and wait until later to save up the down payment, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, so instead yeah. of waiting 10 years to get save up that 20%, to buy a house, Correct. just buy a house with, you know, 3.5% down and then pay the PMI because, you know, mm -hmm. your appreciation should be more than your payments. Correct. And in 10, within 10 years, you'll, you'll gain 20% equity for sure. Okay. If you start at that low, low uh, minimum down. I've never heard of a conventional loan being at 3%. I thought those were only at like 10. It's or some, it depends by the bank sometimes too, but you can do 3% on 
on like, and they sometimes make it a first-time homebuyer program as well. But there are programs where you you don't have to be a first-time homebuyer and still get the three percent down payment. The PMI on a three percent is significantly higher than PMI on a five percent. So I always recommend five percent, even though it's a conforming loan amount. Yeah, what are like the thresholds that people should be aware of? Um, the thresholds is five ten right now, five hundred ten thousand. So if you're under five ten, then it's five ten, four hundred, or six hundred. I don't know. I just usually just go by five ten. Um, if you're under five ten, it's considered conforming. It's a better interest rate. Um, and if you go above that, it's considered high balance. But if you go up to seven sixty five right now, it would be considered a jumbo loan. Yeah. So in like the higher price areas, like here in the Bay Area, pretty much no house. All jumbo is, and NorCal probably. Yeah, they're all jumbo loans. There's no yeah. like conforming loans. Correct. Unless you're buying a manufactured home or a mobile home or something like that. Yeah. And as far as your breakdown, what are you seeing in terms of like conforming loans versus high balance and jumbo loans? Um, over time, it's been going up. So I remember when the year before it was 484 for conforming limit. And then before that was like even lower, like 460, 470, right around there. So every year it's been going up, which kind of shows that the rate, the prices are going up as well. And it kind of lets the affordability for homes right around those lines um, more affordable for buyers. And what about your client base? Oh, my client base. Um, my client base, I'm usually right around the conforming and high balance. I don't do too many jumbos. Um, as a mortgage broker, um, there aren't any, there are, we can do jumbo, but right now during this market, uh, the big banks are way more competitive than a mortgage broker. So that's why a lot of my focus is on um, conforming and high balance. So any loans under 765. And if they are above that, then you would then broker it out usually, to someone else? Usually I kind of refer it out to a, a person I know at B of A, Wells Fargo, City, because like, they have much, it's almost you can't even compare the difference right. in the interest rate right now with the jumbo loan. So I feel like I guess that's where a mortgage broker would be much more stronger if it's not a jumbo. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. Now what about some of the thresholds in terms of your down payment? so that you get hit less hard for PMI? So it all kind of goes by fives, I guess. So, or for PMI, it's different. It actually goes by, not just, even just by fives, even by percent. If you have 1% more, then the PMI drops maybe like a couple dollars. So it's really, they have a tier for all of that, but when it comes to interest rate, it goes by every 5% to 10% to 15% to 20%. 25 to 30, so on and so forth. It kind of stops when you hit like 50% or 40% down. And that's when you kind of just get the best pricing ever. Right. But in most cases, it goes by fives on how much down payment you do, better interest rate. For PMI, it goes by every percent you put down. Yeah. So Makes it's sense. kind of relatable on credit score, even like one. For credit score, it's different. <clears throat> For credit score, they have a range by every 10, 10 points. So if the score was 729, 720 to 729, your PMI would be higher compared to a 730 to 739, mm -hmm. and then so on and so forth. Yeah. So what about like interest rate? Uh, what's kind of like the minimum that you've seen go through and what's like the maximum where above this credit score, you, there's no really no point because you get the best pricing. What do you mean the minimum? The Like if you had a 400 credit score, you probably wouldn't be able to get a loan. Oh, so, oh, credit score requirements then for yeah. the loan. So credit score requirements are for FHA is 580. But then right now, because of COVID-19, and when, when I say that every bank is different, is because it, the economy reached a point where the banks are able are making their own rules as individual banks. They're not following a conforming set of rules. They're actually adding additional rules because it's mostly for the, their investors who do who buy the loans from them. And to make it safe for the investor, they 
been changing a lot of guidelines and making the FHA credit score requirement, for example, 620 instead of the normal 580. But there are banks that do 580, but there are banks that don't do it. So it's all kind of so different right now, and they're not conforming to the same anymore. And they're kind of building off of building new rules off of the already existing rules to kind of meet to save their investors in the end. Yeah. So in the past, during normal times, five、uh, eighty and above is something where、Correct. you can qualify. And now it's six twenty because they're more conservative yeah, for FHA. And, and actually, the Chase is seven hundred.、Yeah. You know. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, and Jumbo is higher. Jumbo, they probably require like a seven twenty minimum at least these days. Maybe you can find a bank that does seven hundred FICO for a jumbo loan, but for a conventional loan, you're probably looking at six forty right now, when it used to be six twenty for a minimum for a conventional loan.、Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there are banks that still do six twenty as well. So、And、what's kind of like the best credit score you can have before it doesn't matter anymore? Seven、um, forty, in all scenarios, but like a budget. Besides from PMI, so if you had a 740 for the interest rate, it's the best. No matter what, if you're a 750, it's the same pricing as a 740, or 770, same pricing as a 740. But for PMI,、um, a 760 is better than a 740 for just the PMI. But the interest rate's the same, but the PMI would be different if you do less than 20 percent down. Yeah, makes sense.、Mm-hmm. Now、uh, let's talk a little bit about DTI ratios. Again, most people who are listening to this particular episode probably don't know anything about getting a loan, and some people think that hey, just because I saved up my five percent for down payment, I can get a loan even though I have a very low-paying job. Why does that not work?、Um, so that's the most important thing, actually, for any kind of loan is the income that you can show to qualify for the loan and how much you can qualify for.、Um, yeah, you can save up the money, but if you don't have the income, then you can only qualify for. So much your income qualifies for. So, for example, so let me explain what debt to income ratio is. It's also DTI. They it's a just a mathematical formula. They take all of your they take the future mortgage payment, including property tax, insurance,、uh, PMI. They add all your monthly liabilities, your minimum credit card payments, your car payment, your student loan payments. Um, anything else you finance that showed up on the credit report, they're going to add that to that monthly number, and they take that monthly number and divide that by the total gross income that you make annually or monthly. I mean, and then that number has to equal fifty percent or lower for a conventional.、Um, for FHA, you can do it can equal fifty-seven or fifty-six point nine nine percent or lower. To qualify for the loan, so it really matters how much money you make on a gross income level, monthly, to tell you how you can qualify, how much loan you can qualify for. So if you have no liabilities, no car payments, no credit card payments, it's very easy for you to calculate what you qualify for on a monthly payment. Say that you make five thousand a month and you have no liabilities, you can easily qualify for a twenty-five hundred dollar payment on your mortgage, and whatever that number. Gets you a loan amount for, which would probably be be right around like three fifty, right around between three fifty to four hundred.、Mm-hmm. And that income number that you're using is, like you say, gross income. So let's say you're making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year,、mm-hmm. and that monthly gross is ten thousand a month. Correct.、Okay. But if you're self-employed, we you always use the net income on your, that you report on your tax return. So there's a difference there, because.、Yeah. They, when you're self-employed, people write off all their business expenses and everything, and we cannot use that as part of your gross income because you're writing it off directly. And whatever that bottom number is, maybe some you can give a little bit of income back on depreciation or meals or whatever it is,、um, but it's not that much usually in most cases. And we can always use we always use the net income on the for the loan, not the gross income for self-employed. Yeah, and that's crazy because one of the key features of being a real estate investor is that you can depreciate and take a lot of paper losses, but in reality, you're making profit because of your rent. But、yep. when you do that, it shows that you're not making money from your business. In fact, sometimes you might make losses, and now you can't qualify、Correct. for more loans. Correct. 
And even oh, sometimes when you report a loss, it minuses your income from, so say you're having like a wife or something that gets W2 income, which you can use easily, but then you report a minus on the business income that can actually subtract from her W2 income sometimes. And <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And because yeah. people don't want to pay taxes and by reporting a minus, you actually get money back in most cases too. So, so it's kind of like, it's, it's some, it's hard because as a self-employed person, you, you, people don't pay taxes like on a quarterly level or even on a paycheck level every time they get paid. So that's why they have to pay it all at once in most cases. And, and some people put that money aside, some people don't. So it really kind of depends on how good you're with your money as a self-employed person. Yeah. And how do you check their income and how much they paid in taxes? Um, so it doesn't matter how much you pay in taxes for a mortgage. Um, as long as you, as, if the payments do, then of course they require that you pay your taxes before you get the mortgage. But if you can go on to a monthly payment plan for whatever you owe for taxes, we'll use that as an additional liability. Um, but if they don't, if they owe or, or, or don't owe anything and the due dates later. So right now due dates are all later. They're not going to, it's not delinquent. So they're not going to make you require, they're not going to require you to pay your property, um, your income taxes right off the bat right now. But later, if it got closer to the due date, then they would make you pay for those or set a monthly payment plan before you can buy the house. Cause it would be delinquent. So uh, I'm asking more in terms of how do you show like proof of your income? Oh, uh, proof of income, mostly through W2s and tax returns and to get an up most recent would be uh, pay stubs as well. So we would need all of those in the end. Pay stubs just show mostly show that you're currently working and we can use that additional year to date income to calculate your monthly income. And then W2s are to show that you're getting paid W2 first of all, and tax returns to show that you reported your taxes and you're paying taxes. Um, those are all requirements to getting a loan. Um, to begin with and if there's a year you didn't pay taxes then you would have to kind of file your taxes for that year and go back and then get the loan yeah or or make sure you owe whatever you owe on that taxes or whatever it is so for self-employed there's kind of multiple ways we see income there um, we see income through mostly the schedule c if they're self-employed and they don't have a separate business name or S-Corp, LLC, C-Corp, whatever it may be. Um, but if they do have a corp set up of some type with a, their CPA, then, then we would ask for business tax returns. And we always look at all kind of income stuff for at least the past two years history. And to make sure that you've been employed for two years. For self-employed especially, we, they always you need to be have that business or, or be self-employed for at least two years to show that we can use the income at all. So if they've been the only self-employed for one year, they went from W-2 to self-employed and it's only been one year, most likely they can't get a loan just yet or use that income at least. Yeah, so to summarize, uh, when they're getting a loan, they have to send you a whole bunch of information mm -hmm. and some of that are your uh, income taxes for the past two years. They also want to see mm -hmm. your W-2. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, that's part of your tax returns, right? You have your W-2s. Correct. And then you also have to show your pay stubs. How, pay stubs. how far back do you have to show your pay uh, stubs? For pay stubs, uh, most recent 30 days. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you have any like liquidity requirements? So I have to show you my bank account. So right now there kind of is just because of COVID-19. Um, right now they're asking for like six to nine months um, PITI, which means principal interest taxes insurance. Um, an association if there's it's a condo um, just to show in reserves but those reserves can show be shown through retirement accounts 401k so usually people have a lot of money stacked up in there and they're able to kind of like get rid of that requirement by showing that reserves but um, before it not as much they don't really ask for reserves jumbo loans they do ask for reserves 100% investment properties they ask for reserves as well um, but in the end, people have those reserves in most cases through their 401k retirement accounts, anything they put 
money aside from stocks, whatever it may be, whatever you can, that can be liquid, um, those can be seen as reserves. So usually don't run into that problem, not having enough reserves. Yeah, because they don't want someone to get a loan and then immediately go for forbearance. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And right now you can't even get a loan if you're in forbearance. So you have to get you have to get rid of all your forbearance statuses on your all your properties to get a loan. Yeah. If you've had forbearance, like if you've how do you say claimed forbearance, whatever, mm -hmm. if you if you decide to to take that, does that impact you negatively in any way? Um it does in the if you're currently on it, but if you are out of forbearance and you caught up on all the money that you owe, then it would be fine. Okay, so it's not like uh, you know bankruptcy or short sale where it stays in your record for a long time. No. Okay. As long as you're caught up, because the bank is the one that's allowing the forbearance to begin with. So they they it's to help you as the owner in the end, but. The, it kind of doesn't make sense to me sometimes because you're going to owe what you didn't pay anyways, and you're going to have a lump sum payment eventually or higher mortgage payment over a long period of time to pay it back. So you're not really saving money. It's just, you're kind of like just pushing off what you owe, but you're going to pay it eventually. So yeah, kind of doesn't really make sense to me in the end, but um, right now I've been hearing recently about deferments and deferments kind of make a little bit more sense where they, add on time to the length of the loan and you're really pushing your payment back and then and by doing that most people are going to refinance before the end of the loan term anyways so it's kind of like that's deferment's really nice I'll yeah that would be i think kind so of too in fact i was thinking about doing that like i actually called my mortgage uh, company my mortgage servicer like a month ago and then they were telling me the options it didn't mm -hmm. seem that great because i have to make like giant lump sum payment anyway in like three or four yeah. months and that's about deferment and for, time for deferment that. or forbearance well i was asking for forbearance um they didn't have the option to just defer it so yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, the option okay. is to do a loan mod or a payment plan and none of those seem very good no definitely don't want to do that um deferment is kind of new right now i've heard one bank and i believe and don't quote me on this but i think it was bank of america that allows deferment now mm -hmm. or was it wells fargo i'm not sure but but deferment's totally different from forbearance and at the very beginning when this all happened they were only offering forbearance and people were going out into it thinking that it was free money no payments and all that and then they didn't really read the fine term but also at the same time the banks kind of at fault where they market it like that on the website on your online banking is like oh can't covid19 like if you can't pay your mortgage, click this link or whatever, and they'll you can put your mortgage to forbearance, all that stuff. So like people kind of just did it without knowing, and um, but it's easy to get out of too at the same time. Yeah. As long as just make your payments mom. back and you'll be okay. Yeah. And I think honestly, it's 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 good if you need liquidity, right? Yeah. Like you need liquidity for right now. You need to stop all your other payments or whatever. Correct. Um, then when everything's working again, you have money, you can pay off everything. You shouldn't be a problem. And especially if you have renters too. So if you have renters that, that can pay, forbearance might make sense as well because there is, you're not, whatever the renters right now don't pay you, they're gonna have to pay you what they don't, what they haven't paid you before anyways. Right. So, and some income properties are based off of the rental income they get. And if they can't really make the rental payment, then forbearance might make sense until those renters give you the money that they owe you eventually. So it works sometimes. Mm -hmm. Now, when you are applying for a loan and let's say you have a W-2 uh -huh. job, I've heard some complications. If you switch jobs, you know, in the past year or so, have mm -hmm. you seen any issues with that? Um, it depends. So what the bank really looks for is the same industry that you've been working in. If you switch jobs and you were a, nurse before and now you're a salesman um, you need two years work experience as a salesman because they're always going to want two years in the same industry because they want to see that you're be you're able to stick to the same job or same type of industry same type of work and then then they'll be able then you'll they'll allow you to work there 
unless you can somehow connect it where if it was say you're a nurse and then now you've turned into a salesman for a medical supply company then you can kind of kind of connect the dots and make it work with and use the work history as a nurse but also with changing jobs if it was like i said before if it, if you went from w2 to 1099 income then you'd have a little problem there too where that would be considered self-employed in the end and you need two-year experience for self-employed for sure what happens if you take like a sabbatical you're basically fun employed for okay. six months or so and then you go back to work um you can it's very possible you can still get a loan even with the say that you took a year off work and you went back to the same kind of job after your one year off sabbatical um as long as you have a good explanation and that it makes sense um if you want to travel somewhere and you kind of give them give the bank like good enough details on why you did it and all that stuff then it might work um, but sometimes it might not. Um, it all comes down to how the underwriter sees you coming back to work because for sure if it was one year and then you were three months on the job and you give them explanation, oh, I wanted to travel the world, then they'll be like, I don't think we can give you this loan <laughs> because it's only been three months. But if you were to work there for a year and you still had that one year, they might be a little bit more like, okay, um, that's fine, I understand because you can show them the year before that you've been working and really show them that I really took a year off work because I want to travel, whatever it was you want to do. Um, for extreme cases that would work for sure is if a relative was um, ill or sick and you're able to show that they have been sick and you've been taking care of them. And that's the reason why you have to leave work. Then of course they'll, they'll, but you need to show, documentation you need to show proof that this is real and that you're not lying because a letter of explanation they'll take it they, you need one of those for sure but they won't just take your word for it if it's been that long you know without work yeah but usually something good to know is also if you have three months or more of unemployment then you need to explain why it's three months or more but if it's three months or less they usually don't ask you why and they just assume that you were looking for a job during those three months if you have gaps in employment. Mm -hmm. Okay, makes sense. And now when getting a loan, does the source of your down payment matter or can you just get it from anywhere? Definitely matters um, because if you, and they usually check with bank statements, two months worth of bank statements. So if you have cash deposits, like cash cash, and it was deposited into your account within the past two months and they see it, you'll not be able to use that as a down payment because unless you're able to source it. And it's hard to source cash because say someone took out $1,200 and gave it to you. And then you took the cash from them and deposited 1100. You wouldn't be able to really source that that well because you would first need to show the bank statement that the guy took out or the person took out 1200 from their bank account and then put and then you got the cash and you put it in and the dates have to kind of relate to where it has to be very close enough where it was the next day or the same day that you deposited the cash when you got it um, so cash is very very unrecommended when it comes to using it as a down payment and you usually can't but keep in mind they only look at two months history on banks bank statement history so if you deposited cash before that and it doesn't show in their record during the two months, you pretty much kind of clean the money a little bit for the bank to look at, and you might be able to use that money. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to down payment, what else do you mean by, what would be another well, source? Well, like let's say someone, like your parent, gives you 100K to use. That's, that's fine. That's totally fine. That's considered a gift. Um, gifts between family members are perfectly fine. They, and... The way you source it is different for each loan too. So FHA, they would always require a bank statement on their end showing the money left their account and a bank statement on your end showing that it went into your account. They'll always check that for FHA. For conventional, all you need is the copies of, copy of the canceled check or the voided check and, and 
to show that it went into your account. That's it. And a gift letter signed by both parties. Do you friends need cannot really give gifts unless you document the friendship. I've had to do this one time and um, one of this, someone's friend gave my client some money and they were like childhood friends and, but they weren't like blood related. But luckily the, my client was the godfather for their ch children, their friend's children. And we were able to document that with the paperwork, the, the Catholic paperwork, I guess, nice. or the baptism paperwork. And, and we got it through. So he's <laughs> <laughs> like that. <laughs> So yeah, friends and family, different kind of story, but you have, if it's a friend, you have to document it in the end. Okay. Do they need to go uh, like and notarize any paperwork or just like document that they have some kind of relationship? Or a gift letter or just- Well, for example, like I know for hard money loans, if someone else is bringing the money for down payment, they uh -huh. have to kind of, kind of, kind of have to be on the loan or they have to sign some kind of paperwork yeah. to signify that they're part of it. For, for regular residential loans, at least, um, they just need a gift letter. And that's pretty much it. And just sourcing the money in the end with the bank statements. You don't need there. Nothing needs to be notarized or anything like that until the very last final loan doxy sign with the notary the, for the for the closing. In the end. And can they send that gift to escrow directly, or does it have to go through your client first and then? The so I rec so if it's a conventional loan, I recommend that whoever the gifter is send it directly to escrow just to save paperwork. And if we do it that way, we just need a gift letter. But if you actually send it to the client directly into their account, some, sometimes they'll ask for you to source it like an FHA loan and you're gonna have to provide all the bank statements. And once you provide it, keep in mind that underwriters have a processing time, turn time of one or two days to look at it and make sure it's all good. And, and they have to, they have to look at it and it takes a little bit longer. So I always recommend they wire it directly to escrow. They'll save a lot of paperwork in the end and time as well. Yeah. And speaking of time, can you tell us the timeline of getting a loan? You know, people go to open houses, they get excited, they put in their offer and let's say Wednesday morning, their offer gets accepted, but right. they don't close on Thursday. What goes on in between that and the closing date? So at least on the loan side, I'm sure they're, there's a whole side with the real estate side too with negotiations home inspections and all that stuff but on the loan side at least once the loan once the offer gets accepted um first thing that happens is they get they get loan disclosures to sign off on uh, loan disclosures just complying um with the just disclosures on what the laws are with loans um you get a lot of you get a loan estimate showing the interest rate, monthly payment, estimated fees at that time. And then at the same time you get all these disclosures, you go into underwriting and the underwriter looks at all the documents that the client provided me in the end, which was the pay stubs, W2s, tax returns, driver's license, bank statements, all that stuff. I submit that to the bank and you go into underwriting and there's a turn time for that for each bank as well. Turn times can all differ. It can be from three days to even a week, especially during this COVID-19 period. Um, it also depends if it's a purchase or a refinance as well. And they always prioritize purchases before refis. And, and then once it goes through the first underwriting, um, underwriting, then you get a conditional approval. And then the, that basically means that the loan is approved. You just have to meet these conditions. Um, those conditions can be anything from escrow conditions where escrow has to do, fill out some paperwork or get some paperwork from the buyer and from the real estate agents, whatever it may be. But it, it can also be things that are required from the borrower and it can be things like updated pay stub or we need, if you show a bonus on your income, we need to show the end year pay stub of the previous year to show that you got the bonus last year as well. Uh, things like that, whatever it may be, there, it can be almost anything really. But once we meet all these conditions, then they give us a clear to close. Uh, once you get the clear to close, the bank is saying that, okay, we're good to close the loan. Let's start the closing process, closing process to get the loan box made, signed and delivered, probably a couple of days, one or two days. So 
process can be pretty quick. It all comes down to how well the quali how well the buyer qualifies. If they are super simple W two, no, and good history and income, credit, everything, you can close a loan within fifteen days, easy, no problem. Two weeks, uh, maybe even less. I've had fastest one I've done was ten days actually. How are you even getting an appraiser to go to the house so quickly? Uh, order it right away. We can order a rush on appraisal as well. Uh, cost maybe like a hundred, depending on the price of the property and where it is. Um, you can order a rush, and they can go out there and give you a report the next day to have a appraisal done in like a couple, two days. You know, so it's very possible. Um, but it all comes down. The longest part is usually the underwriting and getting the conditions for the loan and making sure they all sign off on it. That's the the main longest part. But and other things is the real estate side too, where if they're negotiating something, they find an issue with the house. They're taking some time on who's going to fix it or is it going to be part of the house or is it going to be part of the as is sale or, or is there going to be credit given to the buyer? Um, things like that, where the real estate side has just as much stress as the loan side on getting things done to make the whole transaction close. And both sides have to be kind of similar to, they both have to reach a point where, Okay, we're good to close. All agreements are made. Let's let's finish the deal. Yeah, and I think that's something that people need to understand is that even though you got approved for a loan, you have like a pre-approval letter, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the underwriter is going to be the one who has final say. So Correct. I've had a situation where I was buying a property and pretty much a week before we were supposed to close, the underwriter said they didn't like the deal mm -hmm. and we lost it. So we had to actually go to another bank to get this loan done. Yeah. So it kind of comes down to the loan officer, I guess, in the end, and the experience that they had and, and um, how well they're able to pre-approve the, the buyer to make sure that the loan goes through from zero to 100%. So, um, but sometimes things happen where there are some very special cases where the buyers are very special type of income or, or what type of loan it is, if it's like a non-QM loan, meaning bank statement loan or stated income loan, asset depletion, things like that. Those are very complicated because for non-QM, there's a private investor and that buys those kinds of loans from the banks who do them. And the guidelines are different based off of what the, invest, what the private investor wants. And so those can get a little complicated and hard to pre-approve. Therefore, you have to know, know a loan officer who's done enough loans on the, on that side, if it was that kind of loan, so that you can kind of not worry about going into escrow and switching banks and going through the whole headache, you know, in the end. Right, yeah. And uh, going back into appraisals, what happens if a property doesn't appraise for your purchase price? So if the property doesn't appraise, so I'm already kind of thinking about all these scenarios, but for jumbo loans, I know they, they sometimes require two appraisals. And because it's such, if say it's like a mansion, one appraisal is not enough. They need two appraisals and they need to make sure that, and, and, I, I, and I believe they'll use the lower of the two appraisals as the value. And let's just say you're buying a regular house and the house was five listed for 550 appraisal came in at 500 so what that means basically is that the bank will only loan up to 500,000 on the purchase price and that means the buyer and the seller have to agree on who's going to make up the difference on the 50,000 which is not a good situation in any case at all because nobody wants to pay that extra money nobody or you can meet always meet halfway 25k on each side either lower the price by 25k and the buyer comes in with an extra 25k you can do it that way but but that's an extreme example that usually never happens um in most cases if it does appraise under you're talking about five ten thousand dollars or so um also comes down to the appraiser themselves too where if the appraiser did a good job or not and then you can always rebuttal the appraisal as well. And you can kind of give them comparables that, oh, the, these are different comparables that the appraiser should have used. But from my experience, that usually never really works um, just because 
they'll bring it back to the original appraiser and the appraisers have kind of their own pride as well. So to say that they're wrong kind of goes against their license a little bit sometimes. So, and it, they have it and they want to have a good track record as an appraiser too. So in most cases that, that rebuttal that doesn't work, but it's always worth a try. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. I, have I had problems with appraisers before? I, I don't think so. Um, but it does, it kind of, it's kind of weird, right? Because you never as, run into one. <laughs> yeah. But like as an appraiser, um, comps, like homes are supposed to go up in price, right? So mm-hmm. appraisals are almost always going to be wrong because they're always basing it off comps, aren't they? And at the same time, a human is doing an appraisal as well. So <laughs> it's like, and also if you think about it too, where there's a, around my area, there's a city called Placentia and there's a really nice neighborhood with really nice houses, big houses, but since people have lived there for so long, there hasn't been a recent sale in that area, in this specific area. And how do, how do, how does an appraiser appraise a house like that in the end? You know, when, when the most recent sale was maybe three years ago and the price at that time was like 600,000 when the house should be really like 650 or 700 or 800 even like, so I don't, I don't understand how appraisers make up the time difference when, there hasn't been a recent sale in the area, so they must de- they must depend it on square footages in the city, or I don't know. It's 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 complicated, I think. Yeah, that's a whole other field that yeah. we can get into later. Now, when it goes down to buying your own personal residence, are there mm-hmm. any requirements for that? For example, like you have to live in it for a certain amount of time. So, whenever you sign the last documents for any purchase on a home. Um, and they base it based off of the interest rate they give you too. And if it's a primary residence, in the paperwork, you'll always see in the fine line that you are to move in within three months and live there for at least 12 months. Got it. Because and what about FHA loans? Are you allowed to have more than one FHA loan out there? Yeah, you can. Okay. But in most cases, in my mind, it doesn't make sense to do more than one because if you can afford a second house, then you should be able to afford a conventional loan in my eyes but if you have a lot of money for some reason and a lot of income but very bad credit because that's an odd mix you know what i mean like a lot of income is that kind of like the reason why you would do fha loan in the first place versus a conventional it's, it's mostly for lower credit i would oh, I say credit score is a big determining factor for whether it's the fha or conventional so yeah because i always thought fha was for people who want to do low down payment but then you're telling me here that you can do conventional can do for it 3%. as well. Yeah, that's crazy. So I would say it's mostly for credit score. What were the what were the thresholds again for FHA versus conventional? Credit. Okay, so original threshold is five eighty for FHA minimum. There are banks that do less than five eighty. They can do five hundred actually with a manual underwrite. But I actually never want to do those loans because it's just way too much of a headache. And there's a reason why. They're at a 500 in most cases. So to deal with that is a really big headache and too much of my time actually. And, and then for conventional, it's 620. But like I said, right now during this COVID-19 period, they push it up another 20 points. Um, right now it's crazy where I've even heard if their score is 680 or 660 or under, right around there or something like that, then you have to show reserves on the conventional FHA loan. And that's crazy because they never ask for reserves on conventional or FHA. Mm-hmm. So that stops a lot of people from buying because some, if you're going to do an FHA loan, a lot of people use like all the money they have at that time to buy the house. And, and if they don't have reserves, they can't buy the house. Right. So it's, now, it's been limiting for a lot of people. Now, what about citizenship? Do you have to be a U.S. citizen to get a loan? So citizenship is a good question. Um, U.S. citizen, for sure, you can get a loan. Um, You can also get a loan with a green card as well. And there's a list of different kind of work visas that you can get a loan for as well. Um, There's non-QM loans for non-citizens, meaning that have they have an ITIN number. Um, I don't do loans with ITIN. ITIN, it's called an ITIN loan because they use the ITIN number as like your citizenship. But what is that? Is that like a tax 
like it's name? yeah it's like your, your it's a tax id number okay that they give you but it's not real that you don't have a social security oh uh, international tax id number right yeah okay cool. yeah something yeah international tax id number and but they don't give you a social security and that means that they haven't reached or been there been here long enough or or whatever case it may be like that would be a very different loan from the usual loan and the rates are usually higher on those loans yeah. you're talking for that loan you're probably talking around like six percent at least to get a loan and that's really expensive in the end got it but, so if um, you're like in a student visa you probably can't qualify for a loan no. it has to be some kind of work visa got it has to, you have to work in the end very cool well, John, thank you so much for your time. I yeah. think I've asked you a whole lot of questions about how to get along. I hope I've answered all of them. And, and you've answered all of them, which is amazing. <laughs> Do you, is there anything else that you think I may have missed out on or have left out? Um, we didn't talk about VA a lot. Oh, yeah. Let's um, go into that really quickly. So VA basically is the veteran loan where if you serve in the military or the U.S. Reserve, you can get a very good loan with very little down payment or none at all. Um, this is the only program out there that's truly a 0% down program. And, and the best part is that there's no private mortgage insurance. Like, you know how we were talking about 250 a month, 350 a month, VA, 0% down, no PMI. You're literally just paying principal and interest, property tax insurance, that's it. Um, and it's only available to veterans. And the veterans have to be have to be discharged with good standing as well, so you always need a DD two fourteen or VA certificate or something like that. It's probably the best loan program if you're a veteran. And we can go into the rules, but simply you can only get it if you're a veteran or a spouse of a veteran. You can't buy a house with a VA loan as a sister or brother or mom or dad. You can't if the mom or dad are on the loan you can't get a VA loan. It's only for the veteran and the spouse. And you can even, the spouse can even get a loan as well, even if the veteran died and served. So she can get a VA loan, even though she's not a VA, but she's the spouse to a VA. And mm -hmm. even if the VA passed away. Yeah, I know the interest rates are lower, obviously no PMI, lower well. zero down it's payment. It's a government loan, just like FHA. Yeah. But it's probably the best loan you can ever get if, if you're a veteran. So that's a good thing to know. Now, unfortunately, they can only go up to the conventional loan amounts, right? You can't do like a jumbo loan with a VA loan. Not a jumbo loan, but you can possibly do a high balance loan over 510. But if you reach that point, you probably have to come in with a little bit of down payment, like 5% or so. But it, you can make it work. But in, most, but in the end, like think about the payment though. 0% um, down, you're taking a full like if you do $600,000 house, you're paying a $600,000 loan and the payment just on that, even without PMI, is pretty big. Right. So usually most people fit the conforming box and, and buy a house under 510 and with 0% down. So it's very rare cases that they use a VA loan like that. But there are, I've seen some smart, you can call it smart or abusive, where they use that VA product and really save a lot of money by using it. Some people save it for a future investment they're gonna make because you can only use the VA loan a certain amount of times um, because they, they have, like, you know how I talked about upfront mortgage insurance premium or FHA? That won't, or did I talk about that? Uh, no, I, will, I don't think so. So FHA has something where it's called the upfront mortgage insurance premium. It's only for FHA. They take the base loan amount they take they tack on 1.75 percent of the base loan amount to the base loan amount so say it's a four hundred thousand dollar loan amount 1.75 percent let's just say it's eight thousand they'll tack on eight thousand to the so total loan amount would be 408 so va has something like that too where it's called the va funding fee and the first time used for the va loan that funding fee is the lowest but if you use it again that funding fee can go up from like a 1.3, 1.5 to like a 2.3, right around there, if you use it again, and then it keeps on going up eventually. And then, but there's also a set limit to, for each state, how much VA loan you can get. 
And in most cases in California, with prices being so high, you can usually only get one VA loan. So other you places- You can only have one VA loan active at a time, right? If you want to get another correct. one, you have to sell correct. or refinance out. Correct. So it's a little bit complicated, but it is the best loan if you were to get any kind of house. And it's only available for veterans, which makes sense. How's that work? Can they just go through you directly or do they have to go through some kind of uh, they can go through me. association. They can go through me. Um, they do have banks out there that are specialized for VAs as well. So, but I offer VA products as well and at very good interest rates. And and the guidelines are the same in the end too. So, um, they're all the same. And it's just we go through, we talk to how you like the process with that person in the end. So. And what's like the limitation for their service? You know, like it'll have to be a full twenty years or. How long that to be? As long as they they were discharged uh, in good standing and not dishonorably. <laughs> not dishonorably is the key word, right? <laughs> not dishonorably, they're good. <laughs> I'm sure that there there are rules that I don't even know of where they'll give you a DD. They'll give you that discharge, uh, dis, uh, honorable discharge paperwork for serving this however long, you know. So usually the VAs I talk to are. They've already served, right? They're older, they've already, um, but I don't know how long they served. Um, I don't know the exact details or if they even was injured and went back or whatever it is. Like, I don't know those details. I usually don't ask too much into it um, just because I don't want to hit a sensitive subject sometimes. So, but usually as long as you're not dishonorable, dishonorably discharged. Good, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I think that's like the only thing we didn't cover, but um, we can always cover more later, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this very thorough guide on how to get a loan. I think all of our listeners would appreciate just, you know, how complex this whole industry is and you've made it very simple. So if anyone is looking out there to get a loan, definitely feel free to call John. John, do you want to give out your contact information? Sure. It's, um, my contact information is 650 two zero zero nine five nine eight that's my cell phone number and my email is john kim at motto m-o-t-t-o e-x-p as in peter.com perfect all right john well thank you so much for your time thank you too sean thank you thank you well i hope you guys all enjoyed this interview john did a very great job of explaining everything that we need to know about getting our home loans so if you guys have any more questions about getting a home loan to purchase your very first property whether it be your own personal residence or an investment property, definitely go and give John a call. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.